Thanks for tuning in to the Ecclesia podcast. We are a group of people committed to proclaiming the words and doing the works of Jesus and his kingdom. And these podcast episodes are conversations we're having in our community. You can join the conversation by engaging on all the typical social medias and by joining us Sunday mornings at 11. Thanks for listening. This morning, we are on the second Sunday in Lent. Because Sundays are in Lent and not of Lent. And that's a joke, but it's also true. <laughs> it's all right. No, I'm going to explain it to you. It's a joke that I'm going to explain, which makes it funnier as far as I know. That's what I know about humor. <laughs> jokes are better. <laughs> yeah, jokes are better when you have to explain them, right? <laughs> so I wouldn't be me if I didn't lead off with a short introduction to the season of Lent. Uh, particularly since last week, the first Sunday of Lent in Lent, uh, was one of our more contemplative services, and that just didn't lend itself to an explanation. So in the church's liturgical calendar, the season of Lent is the 40 days minus Sundays, again, more on that in a moment, immediately before Easter. It's a time where historically, And across many denominational barriers, much of the church has engaged in fasting and reflection as a way of entering into Jesus' suffering. We take this time to contemplate our own sin and shortcomings and to see what a gift Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection are to us. During the year I was being confirmed, which is a big deal in the mainline church. It's the year that I affirmed my baptismal vows and took on my faith for myself. Um, My pastor encouraged the confirmands, that's what you call people being confirmed. That was not a word I needed to use. He, He encouraged us to consider during Lent the question, like, what does your life even look like if Jesus doesn't die and rise from the grave? Because even though, like in a real physical historical context, we confess that those things have happened, in the cycle of the church year, Lent is an opportunity for us to consider Jesus has not yet died or been resurrected. And so that has stuck with me for all of these years. So why 40 days, you might be asking yourself. Well, a short version of that answer is that a long, long time ago, the dudes, and yes, they were mostly dudes, who ran Christendom, uh, thought that since Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years before they reached the promised land, and Jesus' own wilderness time lasted for 40 days, that seemed like a good amount of time for us to spend in Lent. Like, they picked a time and that was it. Another question uh, that I basically begged you to ask was, why don't Sundays count? Uh, The answer is that Sundays in Lent are mini feast days. They're like little bitty tastes of Easter. And therefore, in a lot of traditions, Christians are not held to their fasts on Sundays. So, for a lot of Christians, and especially for myself throughout the years, Lent can be a sort of time of almost like self-hatred. Uh, I made a joke in our Atheism for Lent call last week that it was a, not a, it was a time for self-flagellation. <laughs> um, we look upon ourselves without Christ, and we don't necessarily like what we see. 
But the past few years, and especially this year, I'm choosing to see it more as an invitation. An invitation from the Spirit to move out of comfort, the comfortable way that we do things kind of all year long, and into discomfort. But not just any discomfort. I'm after the kind of discomfort that comes from laying down my assumptions and my own way of doing things to see more beautiful and perhaps more true ways of being. And I get the feeling that that's a journey that a lot of us in this community are on together. And I think today's lectionary passage gives us a good opportunity to practice this. So pray with me before we dig into the text. Spirit, be present with us as we are disrupted and made uncomfortable in the holiest of ways as we engage on perhaps a 40-day journey through wilderness. Amen. I'm going to read our lectionary passage today. It's from Luke chapter 13. It's very short. It's just verses 31 through 35, if you want to read along. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, him is Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Katie, your face is great. She's just like, yep. How often have I desired to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So here in the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel, we're approaching the end of Jesus's ministry. And right in the first line of this passage, I think we're confronted with some holy disruption and an opportunity to change our way of thinking. The author tells us that some Pharisees came to warn Jesus that Herod was after him. So there's always a danger when non-Jewish folks are talking about the Pharisees, that we will misunderstand them and what they're doing during Jesus's lifetime. But I do think that it's both fair and accurate to say that Jesus and the Pharisees are not necessarily allies in the Gospels. They're pretty regularly trying to trip him up, the Pharisees, and prove him to be some kind of false prophet, and Jesus gets pretty sassy in return. So the idea that some members of this religious group would go out of their way to warn Jesus that he's in danger, oh, that puts my assumptions that like the Pharisees are all bad guys who don't like Jesus just like right in, I like I have to put that right in the garbage. That's, I can't do that anymore. So then we get this response from Jesus and you guys, this is a rabbit trail, but I couldn't leave it. I love this. I love this so much. (laughs) Jesus is basically like, I am too busy casting out demons 
and curing people of lifelong and terminal illness to be to deal with Herod today or tomorrow. And after that, I have places to be. I love it. <laughs> so then we get we get to this piece about Jerusalem and a mother hen. And I want to spend some time here because I think we have another opportunity here to repent and change our minds and be disrupted about some things we might have wrongly thought about scripture and about God's nature. At least that's what I'm experiencing in this text. So let's take a short but related detour. Um, I want to talk briefly about a movement that I've seen recently in parts of the evangelical church to make Jesus into some kind of macho man's man. Do you, have you guys seen what I'm talking about? Well, sure. Aline said only recent. That's fair. I think there's been a resurgence. Maybe that's a, fair, a fairer thing to say. Have you guys seen what I'm talking about? No. I love... Huh? It's the Wateries Women. This half of the room is saying no, though, and that's, encur- it's, that's encouraging to me. I mean, maybe, yeah, and that's, it's, maybe it's not the water we're swimming in now, which is amazing. So there's this, um, it's, it's coming from, I thought everybody was going to shake their head yes, so now I'm riffing a little bit. It's coming from, I mean, it's coming from the biblical manhood and biblical womanhood crowd, right? So it's coming from the folks who are, who have a very vested interest in maintaining strict gender boundaries, and it's this idea that, like, Jesus wasn't actually v- soft and nice. He was actually very tough and, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think you have to read a lot, of the, a lot into the biblical text to get there. I don't think we get that from what's in Scripture. I think we have to bring a lot of our own assumptions and some, some outside understanding to the Scripture to get there. especially in places like today, because in today's text, we have Jesus calling him a mother hen over Jerusalem's children, right? Like, that's not real macho, you know? So let's, let's start here. Like, let's start with Jesus. So yes, he would have been raised as a carpenter, like his father, Joseph. That's a pretty, like, masculine vocation, even today, And Jesus was trained as a rabbi in the synagogue as well. And that was a position that was only open to men at the time. So we might call that also like a masculine profession, vocation, calling. Jesus also spent an actually scandalous amount of time interacting with and teaching women. His whole ministry was bankrolled by women, y'all. He was loving and affectionate towards children, even when it seemed like impertinent to his followers. And they were like, kids don't bother Jesus. And he said, let the children come to me. Jesus was deeply invested in the treatment of the disadvantaged and the marginalized. I mean, like with some of his very last words, Jesus was worried not only about who would take care of his mother, but who would look after his best friend. You know? Jesus preached grace upon grace, 70 times 7 for those who would sin against us. Never some kind of manly retaliation against someone who harms you. Jesus was deeply, deeply nonviolent. 
so nonviolent that he allowed himself to be executed for crimes he did not commit. Arguably, Jesus could have not only avoided his own crucifixion, but could have tried to raise an army to overthrow Rome. But that was never his way. These things might, you might put these things pretty squarely in the feminine column, if we want to look at things in a binary way. So, so if, if we want to disrupt our way of looking at Christ, maybe we want to disrupt our way of looking at the Holy Spirit. Eh? So let's, let's go there. Scripture's language about the Holy Spirit is bathed in feminine imagery. Right from the beginning, literally. Right? When the world was still dark and formless, Genesis says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters That evokes the image of a woman hovering over the water of her womb as she's about to give birth. John's gospel describes the spirit as a comforter, which is certainly a traditionally feminine role. The Holy Spirit as a gentle dove at Jesus's baptism. There's just this beautiful feminine energy throughout these descriptions. And if we want to let, maybe let our image of the spirit be disrupted, maybe we want to look at how scripture talks about God themselves. I think we just see more evidence piled on for divine feminine imagery here. God is described in their own voice even as a mother, a mother bear, a mother eagle, I'm reading from a list here, a laboring mother, a nursing mother, a comforting mother, even just as a woman looking for her lost coin Now, God is overwhelmingly described as father. Masculine language is used in the majority of scripture to talk about God. That's, those are facts. We can't, like, I can't get around those things. But do we think that that is because God is a man? Or do we think that is because the biblical authors were almost exclusively male and lived in contexts where a masculine understanding of God was the only understanding of God that was available to them. So I want to pause and be clear about something that I'm not doing here. I'm not trying to tell you that God's a woman. Because frankly, like, gender is a biological feature. And God is not, as far as I can tell, a biological being. So to call God a man or a woman is frankly ridiculous, right? Like, right? What, what I'm hoping that we're doing, though, is examining the ways that viewing God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit as exclusively masculine might be hurting us and hurting others. Allowing the Spirit to come in and disrupt our way of being and move us into a truer and freer way of understanding. Here's a way that viewing God in all three persons as exclusively masculine might hurt us. If God is masculine and I am feminine, then I am not like God and I am bad. That's an oversimplified argument that is being made all the time throughout history, though. That's real. That's happening today. 
In fact, I would argue that this is part of why it's so important in so many structures for God to be male. It's to maintain this system of patriarchy. But instead, if we can see that God in all three persons contains both masculine and feminine traits, what might that do for us and for others? I think it might bring freedom. What if it lets us be who we are without being worried about being properly masculine or properly feminine enough to fit into some sort of standard that we think God put into place, but maybe God never put into place in the first place? (laughs) These are tricky concepts to talk about in the abstract. So I have a very simple and silly example from my own family, but I think being silly about it will make the point that the whole thing is kind of silly. So I was raised in a Midwestern football household. No. Nobody laughed hard enough. I, you do not understand the intensity of what I'm trying to convey to you. Our whole town scheduled things around the Ohio State football schedule. My little junior soccer team didn't have games on days of the, of the football games because no one would come. I had a cousin reschedule her wedding after the football schedule came out. I'm not, that's not a joke and it's not an exaggeration. And I can't imagine that it's the first time that happened in my family, but it's the first time I remember it. My brother wasn't particularly interested in sports, so I got all of like I got to go to all of the stuff, and I loved and continue to love watching sports, especially with my dad. My husband Dan, on the other hand, is not he's just not a huge sports fan. His dad's a Michigan State fan, but as far as I can tell, they weren't quite as fanatical in their watching habits. And as a result of that or some kind of genetics, Dan just isn't as into sports as I have been. Now, Dan could choose to find this emasculating in some way, his wife knowing way more about college football than he does. And I think a lot of men would, honestly. But he doesn't. And I don't feel unladylike in a football journey watching my team get beat by an SEC team again. Nobody laughed at my joke. (laughs) All right, it's not a football crowd. It's fine. If Brian Jacob is watching this stream, he got it. Now that was, as I said, silly, but I think that it kind of proves the point. The whole thing is silly, guys. The whole thing is silly. And let's take this out of like a heteronormative family for a minute. Being single isn't a deficiency of masculinity or femininity. Not having children, for any reason, choice or biology, doesn't make a woman less feminine. Families with same gender or non-binary partners are all beautiful because here's the thing, guys. Gender roles are at least partially and maybe totally made up. They change throughout history. We see them change. They're made up. And frankly, gender is not a binary. So I like for us... I'm going to try, and I would like for you to join me, to reject an idea that, like, there is a right kind of masculinity or a right kind of femininity, especially as it pertains to scripture and to God, 
but also as it pertains to ourselves. Because humans are divine image bearers. The image of God is not masculine. It isn't even feminine. It is the person sitting next to you. Period. There's no qualification. And you bear God's image. Beloved, you bear God's image. Our community is in an in-between place right now. We've come out of one stage and we're just before the beginning of another. I like the term liminal space for this kind of place. We've sold our building. We haven't settled into our new office space just yet. We're meeting here at the Y and it's serving us so beautifully for now. And we know that this isn't a permanent meeting space for us. And we exist as we exist here, not as we once were, but also not quite as we will be. I think we will be met with many opportunities to choose holy discomfort and holy disruption. Opportunities to see that perhaps our preconceived notions, the way that we've always done things, are binaries, black and white, male and female, good, bad. They're not actually of God. Perhaps there is a freer, truer way to be. May we choose that discomfort, friends, together. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Join the conversation by engaging on all the typical social medias and by joining us Sunday mornings at 11. Peace and love to you all.